It's 12.09. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us, as we do every day. First couple segments of the program, we live stream. You can go to Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ and watch the radio show as it occurs. I, I promise I'll try not to cough or sneeze or anything like that. But, you know, we're, we're on the, the video here. All right. In addition, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. You can get a head start on a number of the different things that we talk about. And I, I, every day I try to at least send out a couple links to some of the topics that we are going to be discussing. So, again, you can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620. Let us get started. I, we discussed this about four or five, six months ago. And now it is back in the news in a big way. The community of Hurley, up north, the community of Hurley has for decades, probably going back to like the 30 or 40s, the school nickname has been, and I hope you're sitting down for this, it's been midgets. They're called the Hurley Midgets. The history of the Hurley Midgets, it, its n- nobody knows for sure, but it, it appears that what happened is decades and decades and decades ago, they had a team that made it to the state basketball tournament, and a number of the players were were small. And so the radio announcer referred to the players. They, they, these are midgets compared to the people they're playing with, and they did really well, and the nickname midgets stuck. And so they have been the Hurley midgets since then. They do not have a, a little person or a small person. There's not a living mascot right now. Um, they're, they just use an H, you know, so it's like Hurley pride, and, and they've got the, the H. So there, there's not... There's not somebody that they dress up at the games, for example, and and show up. But they've been the midgets forever. Interestingly, and and again, what what are the odds of this? The Hurley Midgets play in the Indian Head Conference. (laughs) So if we're talking about just political incorrectness, run amok. There you've got it. And they are not the only team nicknamed the Midgets that play in the Indian Head Conference. Butternut. The Butternut School District, they are the Butternut Midgets as well. Now, the Butternut Midgets, that goes back, and it's nicknamed after a very famous athlete, Charles Midget Fisher, who was a famous wrestler in the 1920s and early 1930s. And so the the Butternut Midgets are named after this wrestler who was nicknamed the Midgets. As far as I know, there is no controversy in Butternut over them retaining the nickname Midgets. There is, however, a controversy in Hurley. And and what was so interesting about this, like I said, we talked about this on the program four, five, six months ago. Not that long ago, I was, I think I was in a bar. And a couple came up to me and said, we listen all the time, etc. I said, that's very kind of you. Well, you know, we were really listening one day. We heard you talking about the Hurley midgets. And I said, yeah, yeah. And they said, and by the way, just so you know, both, and it's a husband and a wife, we both went to Hurley. And we are proud midgets. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, and then I, I, I asked him a couple of questions. How do you feel about this? And needless to say, the, these two alumni of the Hurley School District didn't think very much about this move to perhaps get rid of the midgets nickname. However, that doesn't mean that they're going to keep the nickname. Here, Here is the deal. Apparently, over the years, there have been a handful of complaints 
that school board members have received. The stories I look at say, well, you know, over the years, we've received some informal complaints from alumni and we've received complaints from others outside the district. Now, my guess is to the extent they're getting complaints about this, the vast majority of complaints are coming from people outside the school district with little or no contact with with Hurley. But regardless, they have been getting some complaints about being the Hurley midgets. So what the school board has decided to do is they've said, okay, we're going to throw up our hands on this. Let's try to settle this. So on April 2nd, which is the day of statewide elections, there'll be a statewide Supreme Court race, for example, on the ballot. Hurley is going to be having a a referendum. Now, I don't think it's a binding referendum, but from what I understand, the school board says, okay, we're going to abide by what the voters say. And the referendum asks whether or not they should get rid of, dump the nickname Hurley Midgets after all these years because some people view that term as being derogatory and insulting to people of small stature. So, April 2nd, people will vote on this. Our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should the Hurley Midgets, after decades and decades, change their name because some people somewhere might be offended by that term? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you get rid of the Hurley Midgets, Does that mean that we now have to remove the term midget from all avenues of life? Do we have no more midget cars? Do we have no no more midget pickles? 414-799-1620. Is it time once and for all in 2019 to say this is an offensive term? We need to get rid of it. What should the voters in Hurley do? 414-799-1620. We're back to discuss in just a moment. And again, if you want to follow it, we're live streaming Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Check it out. 1215 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1217 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hurley. School District of Hurley is going to have a referendum. Should they drop the nickname Midgets? 414-799-1620. Kathy in Waukesha. Kathy, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Kathy. Um, I have a family friend that is a little person, and you know he's pretty able. He wrestled in high school and, and uh, doesn't really think about it as a disability, mm-hmm. per se. But I know that's kind of a, a trigger point for little people is they just want the respect that they deserve and as a person well and let me ask you this why why does why does the, the school team using the nickname midgets why does that disrespect your friend or anyone else actually aren't, aren't they celebrating that hey we might be small but we're we're powerful uh, i don't I think people are poking fun at that because that's the original announcer the sports broadcaster was picking fun of their size well, it wasn't making, no, 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 he was, I don't think they were making fun, no, no, see, I don't think they were making fun of the size, I think they were saying, hey, our, look, our, our guys are, our guys are small, but look, they're at the state basketball tournament, they're accomplishing stuff, I guess I, I don't understand why you think that in that context, it's derogatory, I mean, why would the school district for uh, 80 or 90 years, why would they have a nickname that mocks the players, I think they're trying to celebrate them. Yeah. I would like to see, instead of a referendum on some of this stuff, I'd like to see a, uh, a vote amongst little people. 
You know, I think they asked Indian tribes a while ago, what do you want to be called? Native Americans, tribe, uh, Indians, are you offended by it? Um, I think their opinion is the one that matters, not the school. Um, if you've had a name for 80 years and just because it's history doesn't mean you should keep doing it. No, no, thanks to go. Well, no, I mean, it, okay, it, 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 it I, I guess that the, that's the question. I mean, I understand that there, and we've talked about this in this program before, there, there is language and there are terms that maybe people used 80 years ago that you wouldn't use today. I guess the questions become, is, is this, is, is this so offensive? Or is this a situation where it, it's people looking to be offended? Now, obviously, they don't hurley or butternut or the other teams that have mascots called midgets. They don't view this as offensive and derogatory. They they celebrate this. In addition, there are multiple meanings for the word midget. I mean, yes, it can mean an extremely small person, but it also means very small. A midget submarine. You have midget cars. You have midget pickles. All those different types of things. I mean, do we have to now remove this word from society because you know somebody might be upset about it? Now, can you use it in a derogatory fashion? If somebody were to come up to you know someone you know that uh, ha- has a medical condition or whatever and say, oh, you're a blanking midget or something. Yes, I understand that in that context that is being used in a derogatory fashion. But does that mean we need to ban this word? Let's talk to Joe in Milwaukee. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Thanks Joe. For taking my call. Sure. Hi. Hey, yeah, I did just the same thing you were talking about. I looked up the definition. I don't find it derogatory at all. Matter of fact, um, a lot of these divisions and derision comes from people, I think, not taking a look at their own heart, what their what their uh, motives are. So, um, well, I mean, I guess that, look, it could it be used in a derogatory fashion? It it definitely could. But I mean, I, I tell you, almost, I, I'm sure, I'm, I imagine almost any name that you have out there, you can spin it in a certain way that somebody could be offended by it. This is clearly not used, being used in an offensive sort of capacity. So the people who are offended by it, well, they're, they're not with the context that Hurley is using or Butternut or any of these other communities. Correct. Amen. Yeah. And you can take the truth and turn it around, twist it away. You want it to go, and then there's going to be all kinds of dissension. Uh, th- thanks for call. Well, I mean, of course, we, you know, you went through this a number of years ago. Remember in Wisconsin, where we had the whole controversy uh, about Native American nicknames, and under Jim Doyle and Tony Evers, when he was then school superintendent, there was this presumption that any school nickname that said Indians or something of Native American heritage, that that was presumed to be uh, discriminatory and derogatory. Remember all the fight about that? And then you had people like in, in McGuire who were saying, we're the McGuanago Indians, and we're not going to give in and cave in to this kind of political correctness that's out there because we are not using the term Indians. We're not using it in an offensive sort of way. We're celebrating this. And by the way, McGuanago is, is an Indian name. And if you look at all the streets in McGuanago, half of them have, you know, quote-unquote Indian, Native American names. I mean, that's, that's what's going on. And I think I understand that you're always going to have somebody that is offended about something. And if the people in Hurley decide that, oh, this is just so terrible, people are offended, well, I guess they have the right to change the name, but I don't think that they should be forced into it. And 
I mean, my guess is most of the people up at Hurley are very, very comfortable with this nickname that they've had for decades and decades and don't want to give in to the political correctness that's out there. Let's talk to Dan in Fond du Lac. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I'm a, I'm a president of a baseball program and for 25 years we had, we have a team named the Midgets. It was our first starters, you know, six, seven, eight year, eight, eight year olds. Okay. And then. So this was, it was was like, it was midget baseball, in other words. Right before the Little League. Okay, sure, absolutely. Yeah. So that's what they were called. And then, um, you know, before, we kind of jumped the shark, so to speak. We said, uh-oh, wait a minute. We better not call them that anymore. Nobody complained. But we said we we decided to change it to Junior Little League mm-hmm. instead of the Midgets. And right. everybody still calls it the Midgets. Well, well, right. And it's... And- in that context, you're not using it to mock the kids. You're not saying, "Oh, they're a bunch of they're a bunch of of dwarfs or whatever." You're, you're saying, "Okay, this is the this is the smallest group of, of people. It's the youngest." Yeah. That's how Sorry. we're referring to the ultimate youth baseball thing. Nobody meant any offense by that, and no reasonable person, I think, took any offense with that. No, we didn't. We stopped before we started. And right. We we called it midgets because. That was what they are, small little children. Right. Well, well, right. And, and by the way, there, I mean, Dan, thanks for the call. I mean, by the way, there's, if, if you want to just take 30 seconds out of your life and you go to Google and you type in midget football, you're going to see lots of, lots of leagues. And that's, again, it's the, it's the youth football. It's the ultimate youth football. And that's the term that they use to refer to the youngest, the smallest leagues. And it, it's been a common phrase that's out there. Now, like I said a few minutes ago, I understand that there might be terms that you used in 1930 that have taken on a different meaning over the, or, or, or somewhat that would have been offensive in 1930. Um, Maybe people said them, didn't realize the connotation of it, and you wouldn't say it in 2019. I understand that there are some words like that. But at some point in time, when you have these words where there is clearly no evil intent attached to it, and yet you have all the hand-wringing about, oh, gee, can we can we say this? Is somebody going to be offended by it? At some point in time, you've got to wonder, wonder when enough is enough. Well, in this particular case, at least I will give the school board and Hurley some credit. Instead of simply saying, well, you know, we've received some complaints by this, they, and, and so we're going to act on our own, I will give them some credit. What they've said is, we're going to have a referendum. We'll let the people in Hurley decide. So here is the question really up in Hurley on April 2nd. Will the forces of political correctness run amok at the ballot box, or will people overwhelmingly say, this has been the nickname for decades, we're sorry, we don't mean this in an offensive fashion, and we are not changing? Well, we'll know in a couple months. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Again, thanks for participating on Facebook Live. We do this every day for the first couple segments of the program. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve thirty-six, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, a couple pieces of news. Mike Goucher used to be the anchor person here at our former sister TV station, Today's TMJ4. Uh, I think he left that gig in, like, I, I want to say 2006 or something like that. And then 
went to WISN, and he hosted that up front, the Sunday morning show. Um, he's announcing today that in February he's stepping down from the TV show. He's going to be uh, concentrating exclusively on his job at Marquette University Law School. And uh, I think that's I, people, why, 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 why is he doing this, et cetera? You know, Mike's, what, about 62 years old? And I, I think you reach a point where maybe you say, hey, I've done something for a long time, and now just want to dial it back a little bit and concentrate on some other stuff. But uh, Mike's been a, a very respected journalist in the community, and um, his, his show on WISN Channel 12 has been something that I think people paid attention to over the last you know, 10 years or so, and we certainly wish him well. No question about that. Somebody else I wish well. I People will always ask me after a show, Gee, what did you talk about today? You know, we heard some of it, and, and I always have to pause because it, the way it works in this business, at least the way it works for me, is once I've finished with the show, I, I, I kind of put that one in a, sec, a separate chamber of my mind, and I'm, I'm concentrating not on what we did in the day, but we're, I'm concentrating on what are we going to do tomorrow because that, that's always the thing. It's like, I, so if you ask me at 3.30 today, what did you talk about between noon and 3.00? I will pause. I will give you this even blanker stare than I typically give people, and I'll try to like figure this out. And sometimes I can recreate some of it, but some of it I, I forget. And again, it's it's just it's simply because all right, I'm, I'm concentrating on gee, what do I think is interesting, and what are we going to do tomorrow? Well, I have a dear friend. Her name is Colleen. Colleen is my memory bank. When I run into Colleen in the afternoons, and she's a dear friend of myself and my wife, Colleen is the one, she listens to the program every day, and she knows what I did and when I did it. She's the one that says, well, yeah, I, I liked it when at 135 you talked about whatever. So I, I rely on Colleen quite a bit, like I say, a very dear friend, and Colleen's birthday is today. So wanted to say a very happy birthday to my dear friend Colleen. All right. I, I, this, I If you haven't figured this out over the course of the last month or so that I am frustrated by this whole government shutdown and I think there's a lot of blame to go around what is particularly aggravating to me is the idea that this that this this is something that should easily be settled but for the fact that both sides have decided that they're going to dig themselves into a, a corner um, you have Democrats who are now the budget is four point four trillion dollars, and I've been saying this for the last couple of days. Five billion dollars for a wall. Five billion dollars is a lot of money, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the four point four trillion dollars. On top of that, while I don't believe a wall is the permanent answer to okay that this is going to guarantee the nation's security. I mean, it, at some point in time, physical barriers make some degree of sense. $5 billion isn't enough to put up a wall all across the, the border between the United States and, and, and Mexico. It, it, it's not. Um, I don't think it's practical to put up a, a wall all along the border. But at the same time, fencing and restraints have a role. Think about Summerfest, for example. Okay, Summerfest has fencing. Summerfest has barriers. Why? Because they, they, they want they want you to have to pay admission. They want you to go through the gates and go through the metal detectors. I mean, most places are like that. Miller Park is like that. If you want to go into Miller Park proper, they got walls, and you have to go through the gates. It's just something that makes sense. And a number of Democrats, going back to 2006, as part of border security, have voted for walls, barriers, whatever. They just have. They're refusing to do it now because they don't want to give President Trump a victory. 
and they know that he has promised his constituents and, and his hardcore base that you're going to get a wall. So I, my guess, I seriously believe, in my heart of hearts, most of the people who aren't conceding to President Trump, it's not because they really don't think that there's some role for fencing or a wall or whatever as part of overall border security. It's just that they don't want to give that blankety-blank president any sort of credit, and they're looking at the polls, and they figure, we're winning, so we'll stick it to Trump. That's the one side. President Trump... On the other hand, he's painted himself into a corner because going back to his campaign, he's made the wall the physical symbol of border security. And so while I think it has a role in it, I mean, you you could certainly make an argument that you could spend billions of dollars and, and come up with ways of enhancing border security that are equally as effective as the wall. So this now really isn't about five billion dollars or three billion dollars for a wall or whatever it's about who can win and who can lose and that's why it is just so frustrating to me it is incredibly childish the easy solution to this is you say okay you want five billion no tell you what we're going to give you two and a half billion whatever and then we open up the government but but nobody's going to do that and again depending on how you view the politics of it that's you, you can decide for yourself who you're going to blame so that's why i'm frustrated with this whole Silly shutdown. But but here's what I'm even more frustrated with, and that is the idea that people are being expected to work without being paid. There are about 800,000 federal employees, and they have been furloughed. Of those 800,000 employees, about 350,000 have been deemed as quote-unquote essential. So they've been told, all right, you have to work. But by the way, you're not getting paid. Now, I understand that they are going to be paid at some point in time if, you know, if and when the shutdown ends. But right now, they are working simply on the promise that you will be paid at some point in time. Well, as the shutdown starts to sting, more and more federal employees are being brought back. The Trump administration announced today that they're going to be bringing an extra 50,000 employees back to work. And these people are going to help process tax returns because the tax returns start to hit at the end of the month. Originally, and in previous shutdowns, they didn't process tax returns, which means people didn't get refunds. So, okay, now now they're going to come back and they're going to start processing refunds. Uh, there is a concern that you know some of the people that are overseeing flight safety weren't working they're going to be brought back and some people who were subject to furloughs who were in the food and drug supply and were inspectors they're now being brought back so it's an extra 50,000 people are being brought back to work because they are essential All right the the asterisk though is that none of these people are going to be paid in a timely fashion they they will be i understand they're going to be paid at some point in time in the future now, okay, if the shutdown ends, maybe they'll be paid two weeks from now or a month from now or two months from now. But for the moment, they are working for free. 414-799-1620. That is the Accunate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I don't want to talk about who's to blame for the shutdown. I think it is outrageous that workers are being expected to work without timely payment for their services and they're being required to it and this to me it's not a conservative thing it's not a liberal thing it's not a republican thing it's not a democrat thing 
It is that if you expect people to come in and work. Now, it's one thing if you say we want to shut down the government and, and we're going to furlough people. We're going to lay them off. All right. That, that's a different category. But for the people that are being told, you have to come into work. You've got to show up and do your job. I think it is immoral and just fundamentally wrong that they aren't being paid. And I think whether you're a Republican or you are a Democrat, you should be putting together a bill which says everybody who is required to work is going to be paid and be paid in a timely fashion. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, I don't know about you, but my guess is if your employer said, well, here, here's the deal. We're not going to pay you. Don't worry. We'll pay you at some point in time in the future, but we're not going to pay you on Friday, but we expect you to come in and work. And by the way, I don't know if we can pay you next Friday or I don't know if we can pay you a month from Friday, but we expect you and require you to keep working. My guess, most people are going to say, no, I'm not going to do it. It's one thing if you want to furlough people, lay people off. But if you expect them to work, I think they should be paid. I think it is a travesty that Congress, both Democrats and Republicans and the president, aren't paying people who are being required to work. 414-799-1620. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back to discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Look, I, I want to make my position real clear here. If if you want to, if the federal government, the politicians want to shut down the government over the wall or anything else, okay, fine, do it. That's okay. But you're going to shut down the federal government, and if as a result of that you want to furlough all the federal workers, okay, that's fine, do it. Now, I think it would be catastrophic, but but. That's the decision the politicians make. If, though, you're going to carve out a section of those federal employees and say, you are essential, all right, you're, you're not going to be subject to the furlough. We need you to work. All right, well, then I think the federal government has a moral obligation to pay them for their, their work. I don't think they should be missing paychecks if we're telling them you have to work because you're too essential to do this. And I don't care if you say, all right, well, two months from now, you're going to get your back pay for for people in the real world. That's what we talk about a lot, the difference between the private sector and the public sector. If your boss told you, hey, I'm not going to be able to pay you on Friday or you've missed a couple paychecks, but I expect you to keep coming into work. Well, pretty soon you're going to say, sorry, I love my job, might love you, but I'm not going to keep working for free. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Sherry in Madison. Sherry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Um, Like you, um, I was a federal employee. This was back in the mid-70s to mid-80s, and it was in a defense-related job, and I was considered essential. I was happy to to work and provide what was needed. Sure. Um, But like you, I am totally frustrated with the entire shutdown and, and the inability of people to reach across the aisle. So, you know... Back in those days, it didn't last quite as long as, as right. this one is, um, and we got through it, but that doesn't mean that it was easy. It wasn't. I had a young family that I needed to take care of, and uh, in my particular case, I had enough. I had a working spouse 
Right. There were two of us, and we were able to make ends meet, but everybody isn't in that position. Well, well, right. And and the idea is, I, I guess, it'd be one thing to me, Sherry, if the government had said to you, Sherry, we, we don't have money to pay you. You are going to be furloughed. Okay, so you're at least not working. Well, okay, then you, you can argue, you'd still have the argument that this is dysfunctional that's happened, but at least you're, you're not, you're, you're not working. You're, it's like being laid off or whatever. But here it's the worst of all worlds. They say to you, Sherry, um, we're not going to pay you. You're laid off, but by the way, you're not really laid off. You've got to come in and work. <laughs> so that, that's, you know, they're making you work. They should pay you. The government, I think, has an obligation to pay you and anybody else who's being told they have to work. Yes, very definitely a mixed message. Yeah, right. No, th- thanks for calling. And that's, I mean, and again, that's that's what the the problem is. And again, this is something that could easily be solved. All right, this is another thing where Congress, the Republicans in the Senate who control the Senate, the Democrats who control the House, and the president could say, all right, well, you know, we recognize that there are essential employees, and while we hash out the rest of this over the wall or whatever the sticking point is, what we're going to do is we're going to reach out, and the people that we are telling have to come into work because they are essential, we're going to make sure that they get what they are entitled to, not not three months down the line or six months down the line or a year down the line. They're going to get what they are entitled to when they are entitled to it. You wouldn't put up with that for very long if your boss in the private sector told you that. Now, I understand there's a little different dynamic because in the private sector, if you're not getting paid, chances are if they miss payroll, it's because there's perhaps a financial reason and maybe they're not going to be able to make payroll down the road. But but federal government and the federal government of course they're going to get paid at some point in time but it's just crazy to me that they're not being paid in a prompt fashion it should be an embarrassment and i'm talking to republicans and democrats i don't care about that pay the people who are working 414-799-1620 let's talk to dan on the south side dan you're on wtmj hey jeff how are you real well thank you what do you think i'm 100 percent with you i don't believe you're going to shut down i don't believe that Trump and the Democrats or Republicans are doing this. And, I, and I've talked to you this before. If the TSA, Capitol Controller, so now in an IRS, were to actually walk off the job, give the public warning of three and day war notice, and then just walk off the job, I think that would that would stir things up. I really do. Well, right, because, no, and thanks to call, you know, because you know, right now, there and, and believe me, I understand that there are some people who are are hurting a, as a result of this. You know, and over the over the last few days, when you talk to people who, um, for example, you you're, you're waiting for you've got an application into a government office, and you're waiting for that to be approved, but it's not going to be approved because there's nobody at that government office that's handling this particular thing. So, or maybe you're a vendor that you know does business with the federal government and you're waiting for your invoice to be paid for stuff that you've already sold sold them well you're not going to get paid because there's nobody there to process it or maybe you know you have an ongoing deal where you sell stuff to the government but there's nobody there to process it so i understand that this is hurting people beyond beyond just the federal employees who are affected but you're exactly right if this were a situation where for example, the um, the TSA people simply say we're going to refuse to work, and, and they don't show up, and essentially the the airline air travel in this country shuts down, clogs down, just just for I. It, you wouldn't even have to have three days. One day, 
and there would be such pressure on the politicians to get this fixed that it would get fixed. That's one of the things I was talking about earlier when this started. Initially, the reports were the IRS was not going to process income tax refunds. And I remember a couple people texted me or called and said, oh, that's not going to be a big deal, to which my response was, respectfully, what planet are you living in? You know, There's a lot of people who, who count on those tax returns for whatever, and there's a lot of businesses that count on the tax returns. You know, I, you know, some of some of our our advertisers, for example, who do home improvements and stuff like that, they, they know that th- those windows, those new windows or the new roof, it's getting paid for when people get their tax returns back. And I, I was just sitting there saying, if you sell, say to somebody, well, you know, you might not get your tax return for three or four months. That <laughs> I, I'm, I'm telling you, that was something that, figuratively speaking, would cause the average person to stand up and grab the pitchforks and you know and, and head to the local congressman's office, Republican or Democrat. Again, this this particular aspect of the shutdown to me is not a partisan thing. I just think Congress has to get its act together. The president has to get his act together. And if you can agree to nothing else, I think you have to agree that if you should, we should all agree that if we are going to deem people essential and call them in and say, you have to work, we have to figure out a way to get those people paid. Now, you know, everything else, that, that that's fine. But if you're not going to be paid, I don't think you should be required to work, period. Will politicians come to that? Well, I, I, I don't know. Everybody's still looking at the polls. And, and meanwhile, it, it's the folks that are being expected to work without pay. They're the ones that are hurting. And I guess I just think it's fundamentally wrong, Who, regardless of who you blame this shutdown on, for goodness sakes, you know, can't you call on politicians to get their act together and at least get this portion of the shutdown fixed? If they can't agree on anything else, that that's fine. But if you got to work, you should be paid. 1256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, when we come back, some people are second-guessing the Barron County Sheriff's Department. Uh, hindsight is, of course, always 2020. We're going to talk about that. Um, interesting story about the latest cuts at the local newspaper. The president's in trouble and for serving fast food to Clemson, the Clemson football team. All that plus a lot more. Stick around. 1256. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One one final thought on what we were talking about. I I guess I didn't really think it's that controversial to say that if people are expected to work, they should be paid in a timely fashion. I have have one text, though, during the break that I want to comment on. Jeff, get real. They will get back pay. Union people work all the time while negotiating contracts and get retroactive pay. Well, there's, there's a difference. I understand that people in union negotiations, for example, taking that, that yes, they, they they work while they are continuing to be paid, but but while they continue to negotiate the new contract. 
but they're working under the terms of their old contract. In other words, meaning they're being paid. It's not like they're told you have to come in and you have to work and, you know, we're not going to pay you. Now, the retroactive pay is, all right, you, you've been working for the last two months without a contract. We've now negotiated a new deal and everybody's going to get 50 cent an hour raises and you're going to get, you're going to get back pay you're going to get that raise retroactive to when you went out on strike yeah that happens but nobody is expected to work without being paid and as a matter of fact if you tried to do that in the private sector you would be violating so many federal laws so all all i'm saying is if people are essential enough and they're required to work what needs to happen is Congress needs to get its act together and the president needs to get its act together. And at least as to those people that we're saying have to come in and have to continue to work because we need their services. Yeah, I think they should be entitled to a paycheck. And if that's controversial, so be it. All right. Something else that was controversial that I, I want to comment on this. The, the Jamie Claus story, the little 13 year old girl who was found safe late last week. This is, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a horrible story. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, the kidnapping, the murder of her parents, all that stuff. But the fact that she was discovered safely is an absolute miracle. As we talked about yesterday, according to the criminal complaint, the guy that took her, uh, maybe you can overuse the term monster when talking about criminal defendants. But if he did what he apparently confessed to doing, according to the criminal complaint and what authorities say he did he isn't complete and total he is a complete and total monster his defense attorneys and this is kind of bizarre to me they are they're giving interviews which i i personally think is inappropriate i i ethical concerns aside i think you know i don't know why they are talking to the press and i don't know why they're saying the things they're doing apparently one of the attorneys you know ended up giving a statement to the associated press saying well, it appears that he is starting the case behind an eight ball because, well, the confession might hinder the defense. Well, yeah, to which I would say no kidding. But why Why is the attorney who has an attorney-client obligation, What? why are you speaking about that out loud? I, I just, it makes me wonder what's going on and, and why the attorneys decide they think it's appropriate to start holding press conferences themselves. But let's put all that aside. One of the stories is breaking now, and, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. And there's a lot of people that are asking themselves the, the question, how could something like this happen? And, and, you know, is there something that could have been done to prevent this, etc.? And especially when it comes to law enforcement, like I say, hindsight is always twenty is always 2020 and and people always go back and they they can recreate things and said well you know if you would have done this well if this call would have been made or if you had known this well maybe you wouldn't have acted in that particular fashion and you can almost always do that about any investigation so here's the the developments the the murder and kidnapping occurred shortly before 1 a.m. on October 15th of last year. According to the criminal complaint, uh, the the defendant, Patterson, spent roughly four minutes in the home. This whole thing transpired over the space of just a couple minutes from pulling into the driveway, 
banging on the door, shooting the father, finding the mother and the daughter in the bathroom, killing her and abducting the girl. It took just a couple minutes. And he had planned this extensively. He had gone out. He had stolen a license plate that he put on his car. He had darkened certain things. I mean, he, he was making arrangements not to be caught. What happened was, apparently, in the time between the father being murdered and the mother being murdered, they had called 911. So, I mean, here's, here is the story. Apparently, what happened here, at least according to the reports, is that as, as first responders were heading to the house, Patterson drove past first responders heading to the home. In other words, he was going down. It wasn't like he was pulling out of the driveway, but, you know, he was going down the road as other people were coming there. I I don't know how close to the house he, he was, but, I mean, it wasn't like he was right in front of the house, but he's on this road. A deputy... En route to the house after the 911 call, recalled seeing an older maroon Ford Taurus or a similar vehicle traveling on east on US 8 as he drove west. All right, the deputy saw the vehicle, yielded to his squad car, and other deputies responding to the scene. It was the only eastbound vehicle that they encountered. All right, so. There's, you know, they're heading one way. There's a car on the road coming the other way that does what the car is supposed to do, kind of pulls over. Nobody got any sort of identification or anything like that. Nobody stopped the vehicle. Of course, none of the responding officers knew what they were coming on. They, they, they just didn't know it. All right. Um, later, as part of the investigation, authorities notified the public of two vehicles of, of interest, but they eventually became less, as they described, keen on those cars. According to the sheriff, the passing car was discussed during the investigation, but they didn't have enough information to alert the public about it. It was dark. The police were traveling fast. Nobody was able to really determine the make, the model, other details. They didn't have any specific information about the car, so they just didn't do anything about it. And now, of course, people are going back and saying, well, maybe if they had been more aggressive, maybe if they had stopped this car, maybe if they had put out a description of this one car, things would have changed. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I label this in the category of, of hindsight is is 2020. A situation where, in this particular case, police are responding to a 911 call. They don't know what it is that they are going to find. And if you're driving to a particular location, you know, from where you are over several miles, you're going to pass different cars. You, Unless there is something particularly suspicious about a car, especially away aways from where the incident occurs, you're not going to stop every car. You're not going to be notifi- noticing every car that's pulled over by the side of the road. I, I guess I, I understand that there's all sorts of people that want to point fingers and assign blame. I don't I don't see this in any way, shape, or form as being a failure of of law enforcement. This you had a psychopath who had planned well ahead. This was premeditated, had planned well ahead, and you know the the police they're just responding. They're not even in investigative phase at this stage. 
I don't fault them at all for not recognizing that, hey, we're responding to this 911 call in the middle of the night and a few miles down the road. There's a, a car that we that's pulled over to the side of the road to yield to us. I don't think the cops did anything wrong in this particular situation, and I don't think it's fair to question them on this particular point. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, do you disagree? We discuss in just a moment. It's 117. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Was this a failure of law enforcement that night? I don't see it that way. It's 120. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I I just... This Jamie Kloss case, and I understand there's going to be a lot of armchair quarterbacking going on afterwards. Apparently, what what happened the night of the abduction is is we know that the mother, shortly before she was murdered, called 911. So you've got the authorities that are responding. And as they're heading to the house, down one down a state highway, whatever, um, a ways away from the house, there's a car going the other way, and the car just kind of pulls over to the side of the road to yield. I mean, it doesn't do anything to call attention to itself. It does what we all do when you see the ambulance or the cars going the other way. The car also apparently has a stolen plate on it. But the authorities, they don't really – they don't find there to be anything notable about this particular vehicle – there's nothing to connect this to the abduction, and they don't even know what's going on until they get to the house and find the homicide and the, and the, the kidnappings occurred. So it now turns out that that vehicle was driven by the guy who's accused of the murders and the kidnapping. And some are saying, "Well, why didn't the police put this identify this car, and why didn't they why didn't they make a further investigation or whatever?" And, and my point is, I, I guess. I, I mean, look, I, I understand there's lots of armchair quarterbacking that goes on, but I don't think that the police did anything wrong. There was no reason for them at all to focus on this particular car. It's not like they saw this car speeding out of the, the driveway where the murder scene was. It's just a car they encounter on the road when they're heading to a location. This happens all the time. Jeff in Waukesha. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. There. Hi. Sure. Well, you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, armchair quarterbacking is exactly what this looks like, and people really need to back off with the, 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 accusing the police of doing something wrong. Uh, let's look back a few years to the Jeffrey Dahmer case, where the police actually encountered Mr. Dahmer with a naked teenager out in the alley. Right. And did nothing, you know, had no reason to detain him and ended up letting, you know, a, a criminal go on. Um, you know, to commit his crimes. It would have been all different had they, you know, had some insight into that. Uh, this is even a far less egregious example of that. Well, yeah, I mean, right, if they see, look, if, for example, they had gotten to the residence and they see a car speeding away, that's a, that's one thing. I mean, I, I understand in that case you want to focus on it, but, I mean, just think of how many times, you know, you're driving on the road, Jeff, and, and you see an ambulance or a car coming the other way. Um, all right, th- thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Do we have breaking news here? Melissa Barkley. We do, we do. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center, I'm Melissa Barclay. Just 24 hours after incurring an historic parliamentary defeat, British Prime Minister Theresa May is has just survived a new no-confidence vote. And if you think about it, many of those members of parliament who today saved May's government are the same uh, members of parliament who yesterday inflicted the defeat of her Brexit deal, which triggered the confidence vote in question. Again, uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May just surviving a no-confidence vote. You can find more details right now at our website at WTMJ.com and our WTMJ mobile app. 
what this means is they refuse to put her out of her misery. It, it's one of those deals where th- th- this whole Brexit thing, if, if you think the government shutdown in the U.S. is a mess, and, and it is, th- this Brexit thing is like that I- as well. I think for people who haven't been following this, the Reader's Digest version of this is that the, the British voters in a fit of peak last year decided that they, they wanted to withdraw Great Britain from the European Union. All right, well, that, that might sound good, but the problem is how do you go about doing that? Because as a member of the European Union, you have free trade, you can move across borders and things like that. If you, do, just like in the United States, you know, we, we have 50 states, but, you know, you, you can move freely from Illinois into, to Wisconsin. Well, that's what the European Union allowed trade and things to do. If Britain and when Britain removes itself from the European Union, all those rules are off. And so Britain really does become kind of an isolated island. Well, so the voters said we want to move off this. All right, and then they charge the prime minister with negotiating a way to do that. So she's been dealing with the European Union under the terms under which Great Britain can withdraw. Um, And the European Union is saying, well, okay, that's fine. You want to pull out, that's great, but... You know, we're we're not going to allow the borders to be open. And and who is that going to hurt more? Is it going to hurt all the other countries or is it going to hurt Great Britain? So Theresa May has been trying to come up with plans to make this work. But nobody wants to go along with it. Nobody likes the different plans that are there. So yesterday she's got this plan, which is about the best that she could negotiate with the European Union. People on the left and the center and the right all vote no on it. All right, so today there's all right. There, there's no confidence vote. Should we have a general election? And her supporters say, no, we're not going to say there's no confidence, which would have caused a new election. But we're, we're not going to. We're just going to say, Teresa, go back and try to do something different. But there's not much different that you can do. If they don't reach some sort of deal by March 29th, there's a hard exit. Great Britain is essentially just kind of completely and totally isolated. So. Uh, Theresa May remains the prime minister, but where it goes from here, nobody knows. Isn't it just amazing how dysfunctional these governments have become? Our government, the government in Great Britain, for goodness sakes. It's 126. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One thirty-four, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, stick with me on this one. I am a big fan of the Marquette. Golden Eagles, they're always going to be the warriors to me before politically correct folks required them to change their name. But this this has been a very, very good year for the Marquette men's basketball team. It's the fifth year of the current coach, and the, these are all players that he brought in. And it was, I think for a lot of fans, it was kind of like a, a make-or-break year. And, and clearly, at least so far, the team, it, it's been a, a, a make year. They're 15-3. They're and three. They're in the top 15 in the country as far as, as rankings. Uh, they, they played some very, very good basketball games. And the, the teams that they've lost to, they lost to Kansas when Kansas was ranked number one. They lost on the road to Indiana. And they lost to St. John's, again, on the road. They're are so far undefeated at at home, and I, I think there's a lot of optimism. They've got a couple stars, including this point guard named Marcus Howard. And if you haven't seen him and you're a basketball fan, you're really missing something. This guy, on a couple occasions, gone off for 50 plus points. He's one of these types of players who can just kind of take over a game. So last night, Marquette is playing Georgetown, which is in Washington D.C. 
because the games are all timed for TV, it is what is known as the late game. But even then, it's not that late. It started at 7.30 our time. So that's 8.30 East Coast time, but 7.30 our time. The game was, I watched it, it was, I want to say it ended about 9.45 our time. So this wasn't something that was a West Coast game that, you know, didn't end until 1 in the morning. It it was over by around 9.45. It was an absolutely amazing game because Marquette's had a wonderful year so far, but, but they have struggled on the road. I mean, I think they have only one true road win so far this year, and that was that amazing win they had last week against Creighton. So they're on the road. Tough to win on the road in the Big East. What happens is, in the first couple minutes, uh, Marcus Howard, their, their star guard, he, he either gets bumped or he makes a sudden movement and he kind of tweaks his back. And he's out. He didn't play the rest of the game, didn't score a point. So here you have your superstar guard. You're playing on the road. The Georgetown basketball team's a good team. You're playing on the road, and you've just lost your superstar guard who never who, in the first three minutes of the game. That is not a recipe for going on to win. But you know what? It was gritty. Other players stepped up, and they ended up winning by three points. It was just it was a really, really, really good, fun game to watch. All right. So, great game. I don't know if it's the best game of the year, but something certainly outstanding. Now, the local newspaper, they've got a reporter assigned to do Marquette and and actually has a great story uh, about this, talking about the drama. It is an incredibly well-written story. However, if you get home delivery of the local newspaper, you didn't get that story it because the story today at least only appears online because the game ended I don't know, 9.30, 9.45, maybe 10 o'clock at the latest, but I don't think it was that late. And as a result, it, it didn't make the hard copy of the local newspaper. Now, again, if, if you can go online and you can and you can read it, and there's a great story there, but it's not in the hard copy of the paper that gets delivered. Just like Brewers games that end after a certain point, if you get the paper delivered the next day, they're not there. Now, this has been a tough time for the newspaper industry in in general. And for the Journal Sentinel, there's another story about how a lot of their, or at least several of their long-term reporters are taking buyouts and leaving. Most recent report out today is Crocker Stevenson, who's been an investigative reporter for like 30 years at the paper. He and a reporter before that, he, he's taking a buyout. You've got the reports that there's this hostile takeover bid that's being launched against the newspaper by... Uh, a, a company that is renowned for buying up newspaper resources and then laying off people. <laughs> so that, that, that that's not good news. But you have this, this fundamental problem that's out there, that if, if you get the hard copy of the paper, you know, r- forget the fact that you're not going to have, that maybe there's less in the paper now than there used to be. But you, you just don't get stuff, particularly for people who buy it for sports, you just don't get stuff that happens in the evening. Now, I've told this story before for years and years and years and years and years. I mean, decades. I was a subscriber to, to the newspaper, and I got the seven-day home delivery. And I got this, uh, this was when I was still living in Whitefish Bay, but I get this renewal notice, and it was like $400-plus. And, and I called up, and I said, it's just, it's not worth $400 to me. And they said, well, Mr. Wagner, because you've been such a good subscriber over the years, tell you what, we'll, we'll give you a discount. We'll give it to you for like 360 bucks." And I said, no, 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 no. It's, I'm sorry, you, you missed the point. It, it's not worth that. 
And so then we got to talking, and I ended up, because I, I appreciate the content that's out there, I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll get a digital subscription. And so I, I have access to you know all the stuff that's in the regular newspaper, plus all the stuff that doesn't make the newspaper that's on the Internet, and you get it for, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 bucks a year. I, I don't know. But it's, and it's, you get everything. It took me about a week to try to figure out, and if you have the Internet subscription, the online thing, you can you can access the hard copy of the paper. So I can go, I can click this button and say E-Edition, and I can see the paper as it was delivered to people's homes. Um, I can read the, the green sheet and the funnies and things like that. And again, you get all that for 30 or 40 bucks as opposed to 400 or 350 or whatever it was going to be. What's more, I get, I get the news coverage particularly of sporting events, and, and let's face it, I mean, the sports section is one of the reasons, you know, people are interested in local sports, and it's one of the people reasons that people subscribe to a paper. I get it um, to, to read. I want to read about the Marquette game. I want to read about the Bucks game. I want to read about the Brewers game. I want to read, and Packers perhaps less of significant, but I, I want to read about all these things, and I want to read about them actually, you know, right, right away. But yet, because of these new deadlines, you end up in a situation where if you're getting a hard copy of the paper, you, you don't get the results, not because it's a West Coast game, but because, well, it's 9 o'clock or 9.30 or, or 10, and, and we can't publish it. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, this isn't an indictment of 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 the reporting at the paper. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good people that work there. There's a lot of interesting stuff that, that's out there. And candidly, I am extremely happy with the access that, that I get through my electronic subscription. But I will tell you, having done this now for, well, well over a year, probably a year and a half, I can't see ever going back to home delivery of a hard copy of the paper. I get everything I need. I get the breaking news stories. So when I check it this morning, I get the story about Marquette winning. Or last night, I get the story about Marquette winning. These early deadlines and all the other stuff, and I don't mean to pick on the Journal Sentinel here, but I mean, I seriously, and I understand that there's some people out there who still like hard copies of newspapers delivered. For me, I love the content. This isn't about the content and the reports and things like that. It is just as a practical matter. I don't see the future of a hard copy of a newspaper. It costs a lot to produce. It costs a lot to deliver. And now that you've got all these early deadlines and stuff, the things that a lot of people want aren't in it. And I will tell you, unless the newspaper industry, and I am not don't mean to pick on the local paper, unless they figure out a way around this, and I don't think that's the trend, I, I think hard copies of papers, most papers, maybe not some of the national ones, maybe not the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, but a lot of these papers, I don't see how they are going to survive. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And my guess is, if you are... If you are below a certain age, maybe I keep upping this, maybe maybe, maybe even 40, the, the idea of sitting down with a hard copy of a newspaper is just something that, that's alien, you know, that, that's just alien to you. You didn't grow up with it. 414-799-1620. All right.
are hard copies of daily newspapers going to continue to exist five years from now, 10 years from now? I'm starting to seriously wonder. Let's start with Sue in Cedarburg. Sue, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, we love our newspaper. We get it delivered every morning. The sitting in the sunroom, reading the paper, sitting at my computer and looking online to read it does not excite me at all. And we pay $13 a month to have this paper delivered to our door. Um, is, that, is that seven days a week? Seven days a week. Let me, so let me ask you a, a question, which is, it's a rude question for a gentleman to ask a lady, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways. How old are you? I'm 74. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, That's I, probably why, but I love, we love our newspaper. No, and I, and, and I, thank, thanks God. I mean, I just, I, I, I understand. And I, I there, I will tell you, I was in the habit. I, I thought the same thing. I like the hard copy of the paper, et cetera, et cetera. It took me about a, a week to, to, and now my, my routine in the morning. Now, don't get me wrong, and this isn't a criticism of the content. My, I, what I do every morning is I will, I'll make my coffee. I'll sit in the chair in my living room. I will grab my laptop computer. My dog, Sasha, will sit on my lap and, and I will, I will read, including the e-edition, which is exactly what gets delivered at home. I'll, I'll read that. I'll go through it. I'll scan it quickly. I'll look at what's in the paper. And it, it took me a couple days to get used to it. But now, I, I, I don't. Matter of fact, now when I get hard copies of various newspapers, it's almost an inconvenience because I have to figure out what am I going to do with the hard copy of the paper now that I'm finished with it. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Scott in Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Hi, Jeff. Scott. Yeah, I'm I'm 52 years old, and I was I was I grew up with a hard copy newspaper. Uh, you know the Sunday the right. Sunday uh, uh, coupons and and funny pages and the whole kit and caboodle. And honestly, I haven't since the advent of the internet, I haven't picked up a hard copy newspaper anywhere mm-hmm. in well over 10 years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I just haven't. I. I I and now with smartphones over the course of the last five years, I haven't looked up uh, news on a on my laptop uh, mm-hmm. since the advent of of the smartphone. So yeah, it's uh, you know I called it ten years ago. It's dead. It's well, gone. It, you know that well, is what it is. Right. I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, again, I and, and I I understand. That, that there is there is this appeal that and again I, I appreciate I mean Sue she spent a lifetime getting the, the paper and I, I understand there's okay I'm I'm gonna sit I'm gonna sit in the living room and my husband and I we're gonna have our coffee and we're gonna look back and forth at the paper but I, I just that's not the way most people consume stuff nowadays and and again I, I just it, it really kind of brought it home yesterday when I'm saying okay I want to read the story about Marquette and and the papers are kind of doing it themselves and I don't mean to pick on the journal Sentinel this is this is unique to news to daily newspapers but I'm sitting there thinking, I want to read about the Marquette thing great story but it it didn't even make the paper because okay it occurred not at 11 or 12 o'clock, but it occurred at 9.30, so they didn't have a time to get it into the print edition. So, But I, I could get it online. I mean, just the more and more I look at this, it's like, why, why are people getting hard copies anymore, especially if it's going to cost you a bunch of money? 414-799-1620. We pick it up right there. 147. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
149, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff, I hate reading my paper on a computer screen. I still get a hard copy, but I agree. I know my days are numbered. I'm with you also totally dismayed over lack of local sports coverage. Uh, well, you know, it's in the case that I was talking about yesterday, it's not a lack of local sports coverage. It's the game ends at 930 or 945, and, and it doesn't make whatever the deadline is. Lucy on the west side. Lucy, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to be 70 tomorrow, and I'm cutting the paper subscription this time it comes due. No, and, and, well, first of all, happy birthday. Secondly, okay. why? Well, by the time that I get the newspaper, I've read everything that's in it. Because right. I get, you know, I get these iPhone things, and I'm on JS Online, mm-hmm. and I'm one of these people that if I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep, <laughs> I'll see what's in the newspaper. So uh, it just seems silly, and it seems wasteful to, to have all that paper around, and we end up toting it out to the recycling. Mm-hmm. The crossword's not good. My son does the crossword <laughs> out of the Wall Street Journal, so. Right. And, um, and so you, it's, you want the content. It's not that. It's just you're saying, hey, why, why spend three or four hundred bucks to pay for something when I can get the same thing and I can read it digitally and I can spend twenty-five or thirty or forty dollars or whatever special is going to be that day? Yeah, I mean, I hate to do it because the delivery person depends on the routes, but it's just, it's, it's not doing anything for me. So, yeah. No, no, thanks for calling. And again, this is this is not an indictment of, of content. I think more than ever, people people want content. Um, the problem for the business model is, all right, how how do you I hate the phrase, but how do you monetize this? How do you how do you make as much money out of the digital subscriptions as you do out of the people that are spending three and four hundred bucks or whatever it's going to be to have home delivery seven days a week? And, you know, one of the things I understand that there's this value with coupons and stuff like that. But the the truth is nowadays. And my wife has demonstrated this to me on a constant basis. She can find coupons for pretty much anything just by a little bit of search on the internet. You don't need, you don't need to have a hard copy of a paper or a hard copy of a magazine to do it. And I acknowledge it took me a little bit of getting used to, but now that I, I do it, I, I'm getting away. I used to have a whole bunch of hard copies of newspapers delivered, but as the cost of them went up, um, I, I, I've moved away from that, and I really haven't been sorry. Chris in Whitefish Bay. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I subscribe to the Journal Sentinel at the bare minimum in order to have digital access, right. you know, that I can access on my laptop, on my iPad, on my phone for breaking news, for all of that. The two copies of the hard paper that I get every week, Wednesday and Sunday, get put in a bag, and they get taken over to my 75-year-old mother's house because <laughs> she still loves reading the newspaper. And right. it'll probably can be that way for her, her rest of her time. And I, I, like, kind of like you alluded to before, I don't have the time uh, to sit down and read for the paper. But also a lot of the stuff that's in the paper, I've probably already read online or had a push notification, mm-hmm. so it's no longer breaking. Yeah. And uh, it's so, yeah, I do agree that there I think there is an age and I don't know what that age is. Maybe it's 60, 65, where there are people who still like to get the physical newspaper. But then under that age, they don't. And they would only have a digital only subscription. Right. And in your case, even even though you're you're being a good son and doing this for your mom, you're only doing it two days a week. It's, it's just the Wednesday and Sunday editions. Right, exactly. And where my mom lives, they actually don't deliver the newspaper to her door. So unfortunately, yeah, I, you know, 
that's how she gets her newspaper. And, I mean, she watches the news, but she still loves to read every bit of the newspaper from beginning to end, whether it's a week old or five days old. She doesn't care. Right. No, and thanks for calling. And, and I believe me, I, I understand that there are, are people like that. And, and it's just, I don't have an answer for this, but it is, it's, it's the the problem the the print newspapers have is this, this whole idea of all right it it's expensive to produce a paper it's expensive to deliver a, a paper then you've got all these cost pressures that are out there and then you have these hostile takeovers that are out there and so what ends up happening is you end up saying okay well we need to save money so we're going to let reporters go or we're going to give them buyouts or whatever so then there's there's fewer and fewer people that are providing the content you know you add all that up and then then there's the frustrations because now we have to have the early print deadlines. You know, we, we can't hold something over. So stuff that you were used to seeing, like the Brewers game results or a Marquette game that ends, again, 9.30 or 10, we, we can't have that in the print edition. But everybody – so, again, and this is a particular example where it's a great story, but if you wanted it, you, you couldn't get it, at least today, in the print edition of the paper. So you run into this question of, you know, why why do you bother with it? And I, mean, I think the the local newspaper, and I, I don't mean to pick on the Journal Sentinel because this is not a unique problem, um, especially with hard copies of of papers. Digital subscriptions increase as more people take them. I mean, you look at the New York Times, and in the age of Trump, we were talking about this the other week. That they're one of the reasons. One of the reasons I believe that they are so anti-Trump is the fact that it's it's goosed their online subscriptions a lot. There's people that know that they're going to be able to go and they're going to find. They want to read the negative stuff about President Trump, and they know they're going to get it from the New York Times. So they have a digital subscription to the New York Times. So their digital numbers end up going up. So I mean, I I understand that there there is that niche that's out there, but whether or not that replaces the income that you lose from when you used to print stuff, that that's the more difficult thing. I stand my by my prediction. I think there's going to really be a sea change in hard copies of newspapers, and I would not be surprised five years. I would not be surprised five years if the daily newspaper is kind of a thing of the past, maybe a Wednesday and a Sunday print edition, but I think you're going to see substantial cutbacks. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I just think it's the reality. It's 156. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back in about eight minutes, um, there's, there's a teacher's union which wants more money for uh, the teachers, and they say that they think the money should come from rich people. We're going to talk about what makes somebody rich. Stick around. It's 208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. I I have not commented on this or opened up the phone lines for the last day or two because on on the one hand, I thought, huh, this is an interesting thing to create a dispute over. But what will people think about it? But eh, I think it's worth discussing. All right. Now, I understand that for some people, President Trump can do absolutely no wrong. I, I get it. And for other people, President Trump is, is viewed as, as Satan incarnate and he can't do anything right. And we hate Trump. We hate Trump. We hate Trump. I, I And I guess I, I find that type of polarization and tribalization to be in, incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And I also understand, though, that President Trump brings on some of this stuff, maybe most of the stuff himself. So I I, I get all that. But it's always amazing to me where controversies arise. Clemson 
won the national football championship. They they beat Alabama. This was very, very good news to my dear friend Jenny, whose brother-in-law is on the Clemson Board of Trustees. Uh, he's a Clemson grad, and he, he actually, I think, you know, a big wig out in New York, um, but but he stays connected to his alma mater of Clemson. So you know, Clemson just drubbed Alabama, win the national championship, and as often happens, they get invited. The, the president will invite teams that win various championships to the White House. This has become controversial in the age of, of Trump, where you have different teams that say, well, we don't want to go because we don't want to be seen as supporting him, et cetera, et cetera. So anyhow, the Clemson Tigers, the football team, goes to the White House on Monday. Now, what is one of the things that's going on? We, of course, have the government shutdown. So you have all sorts of people that have been furloughed. And in the category of people who have been furloughed, a lot of the White House staff, and I'm talking about the people who cook and things like that, are furloughed. So you have this football team coming to the White House. So the the president thinks, well, I, I have to offer them something if I'm going to be a host. And so what he does is he goes out and he buys a boatload of fast food. And by the way, he bought it. I mean, the, 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 what they estimate is that this cost about 3000 bucks, and he reached into his own pocket. Now, I understand Donald Trump spending $3,000 is like you spending a quarter. I, I, I get it in that regard. But nonetheless, he goes out, and I don't think he personally went, but he has people that go do that. And they bought – they went to McDonald's. They went to Wendy's. They went to Burger King. They bought burgers. They bought fish sandwiches. Um, and these were served on trays in the dining room. Tubs of dipping sauces were stacked in gravy boats on another table. Heat lamps kept French fries and Domino's pizzas warm. Salads were available, too. So it's like <laughs> my producer grew is just laughing. So, I mean, it, it's like fast food heaven here. And so you have all the players that they're they're going and they're eating. Well, as you might expect, this created a huge issue in social media. The argument being, of course, oh, you're you're dishonoring and disrespecting the players. Reggie Bush, who um, he was a Heisman Trophy winner, as I recall, who um, got into serious ethical problems um, with regard, I think, to you know taking money when he was a football player. He sends out a tweet that says, "Just when you think you've seen it all, um, Clemson football players deserve better." You are the world champs, and this is the honor you receive from our nation's leader. It's disrespectful on so many levels. Just a huge slap in the face after that kind of performance, etc., etc. And, of course, uh, the picture of President Trump standing behind a table loaded with fast food has, in fact, gone viral. All right, our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Was this offensive? Should the Clemson football team feel that they have been disrespected by the president? The president, for his part, says, hey, I love fast food. This is some of my favorite stuff, so I put it out there. And by the way, we've got this government shutdown. All right, was this disrespectful to do this, or was just this just something that, well, it's what an unorthodox president would do? Was this a diss of the football team? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. Um, if, if this were Barack Obama that had done it, would people have been offended? 414-799-1620. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. 213, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
316, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so Monday, the Clemson football team, they won the national championship. They visit the White House. President Trump in the state dining room. He has a spread set out for the football players, but he says it's because of the strike. What he has is fast food uh, of every imaginable description. Um, Now, one of the things that was odd, and and my producer, Gru, makes this point, the silver tongs so that you could access the Domino's pizza. But, but, you know, he's got set, he's got fast food set up all over for People who support Trump, they say, hey, this is resourceful. This is this guy for people who don't like him. It's, oh, what an insult. All right. Was it was it insulting? Was it disrespectful to offer fast food to this team? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Rich in Caledonia. Rich, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I find kicking criticism from a guy who had to return his Heisman kind of rich. <laughs> yeah, Reggie Bush. Yeah, that Re- yeah. Reggie Bush talking about what's disrespectful and what's appropriate. It, there is yeah. an irony to that. Yes. Yeah, one of the players uh, sent out a tweet that uh, he'll be rem- able to remember it the rest of his life. He had a whopper in the White House <laughs> as president. Yeah, I mean, They're kids. You I mean, know, they had a good time. They went there. They were with the president. I, I, they got this flipped around the wrong way. He's the president. Right, and they got to—I mean—they got to visit the White House. So, thanks for call. I guess I—is this kind of an out-of-the-box thing? Yes. Um, you know, keep in mind. I mean, there, there's all sorts of ways that you—you you could have catered this as well. But I think he was kind of clearly making a statement. But but you know what? I mean, President Trump makes no secret of the fact that, for better or for worse, he loves going to McDonald's and getting this stuff. My guess is that this is a regular part of, of what he, in fact, eats, and he probably figures if it's good enough for me, well, it, it's it's good enough for the players. Okay, was this disrespectful? 414-799-1620. Joe in Sheboygan. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Can you hear me all right? I can. Yeah, if you listen to what Dabble Sweeney and the kids said, those boys said that was the best they ever saw. That's all that counts. They said they couldn't believe all the different foods that they were You know they picked out. I mean, they had everything from French fries to chicken. These are football players, athletes. This is their food, pizza. I mean, that, this, this political stuff is just ridiculous. Well, I guess, I mean, thanks for calling. I guess, see, that's kind of how I, I look at this as well. I mean, it's it, it's... Do I mean? Hopefully, they have nutritionists, and, and my guess is that my guess is they don't eat this kind of fast food on a regular basis. But at the same time, my guess is every one of those football players, from time to time, just like most Americans, you know, goes to the occasional Wendy's or Burger King or McDonald's or orders the Domino's pizza or the equivalent. So I mean, it's it's. In some respects, I think you can argue that it, it's probably perhaps better that he's serving food that is going to be familiar to the players, to the average person, as opposed to, you know, you go to some of these things and you say, what is that exactly and how do you eat that? I mean, I actually, this story kind of made me smile. Uh, to tell you the honest, good, to goodness truth, got a couple texts. That it just, it sort of made me smile because I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is, it is classic. Donald Trump. I mean, it's sort of like when when Barack Obama, remember when he decided to have the beer summit and you invite a couple people together and let's try to solve race relations over a couple beers. Well, this is sort of the equivalent of the beer summit, except perhaps on, on steroids. 414-799-161. I just, I thought, again, the, the story 
made me smile. Did I think that this was a controversy? Should people be completely and totally offended? My comment would be, regardless of how you feel about the president, you need to be able to smile. And my guess is that if Barack Obama had done something like this, that that's how it would have been viewed. It would have been viewed as lighthearted and, oh, this is a man of the people. And he knew that a lot of these football players would love to have this fast food. So how creative was it that he did that? Let's talk to Jeff in Fox Point. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. I would not have been offended. I would have gone right for the Wendy's, and I would have been glad that it wasn't something I didn't know how to eat or, like, something really messy like chicken cacciatore or something. Well, right. Or, or gee, they've got, they've got snails there. Or, or what, what is this green thing? I've never seen something like this. It's like, hey, I, I've got a Whopper and French fries, or there's a Big Mac here, or there's a fish sandwich. Give me two of them. Yeah. I would take a Wendy's burger over crawfish that I didn't know how to eat any day. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I, I mean, I, I could see like crawfish etouffee and stuff, but I mean, now this is, this is something I, I can see the football players kind of, you know, digging in for this. This isn't a state dinner. It's not. Like, it's not like he's serving the, you know, the, the French prime minister or the French president or, you know, it's, it's not like he's serving them this. It's, it's, it's an athletic team that's there to visit the White House. Sometimes I think we all need to lighten up. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to, uh, let's see. Let's go to Jim in West Bend. Hi, Jim. How are you today? I am well, thank you. Okay, was it offensive for the president to serve this this fast food to the football team? Absolutely not. The honor was of winning a national championship and getting to go to the White House and meet a president. I was fortunate enough to be a college coach for 14 years in three different levels, Division One, Two, II, and Three. You all play for the ultimate goal of winning a national title. And when you win a national title, there are some cool things that get to go along with it. It's not what you eat. It's meeting, being able to go there. And every one of those kids, yes, they have nutrition. They live by. They have all that stuff. But in the end, they all go out on Saturday night after a game, have a good time, and end up at a fast food place <laughs> eating a Big Mac or a Taco Bell taco. Right, and chasing I mean, it, it down with a milkshake. That was cool. Yeah, yeah I, I, I guess that was cool. Right, and thank, see, and that, that's the way I think most people would react to it. Pat in Hartford sends me a text. Jeff, I'm guessing the football players were happy to enjoy the more casual food than trying to figure out which fork to use at a formal fussy dinner. Well, that's... That's the kind of thing as well. You know, you, all right, you, you show up and look, I, I get invited to a lot of events where they have really nice spreads that are out there and you sit there and you've got that little plate and you're kind of walking up and down and saying, okay, I'm going to couple, take a couple pieces of cheese and I'm going to pick a couple pieces of crackers and oh, there, there's a, there's a chicken wing or something that's there and I'll, I'll take that and there's something else that I'm not exactly sure what that is. I, I'm sure these football players just got a kick out of that and I'm sure that they did not feel, or at least most of them, did not feel like they were, you know, disrespected. So I, I, I look at these stories, and look, and I understand we are politically divided, and I get the fact that people are upset about, you know, everything the other side does. But I was just kind of looking at this story, and I thought, this, this is sort of clever. And seriously, if Barack Obama, now Michelle Obama would have probably had to have been out of the White House because of her healthy eating stuff. But if Barack Obama had done something like this, the, the reaction would be he is a man of the people. He's got his pulse on what these college kids want. And isn't this clever? He, he's serving them something that they're going to enjoy and they're going to eat. 
for this special occasion. He's serving them this as opposed to some fancy stuff that, you know, nobody knows how to eat or what it is. That's how he would have been, I, I think, viewed, and everybody would have smiled and said, oh, this is great. But because it's President Trump, well, it's a whole different take on this. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, he wants to invite me to the White House and he wants to serve me. Well, I, I kind of prefer the Big Macs to the Whoppers, and Domino's Pizza I'm not great on. But, 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 I'm sure I can find something and make that work. 224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two twenty six, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so this is the flip side. We were talking just a couple minutes ago about how I, I just don't understand this beef. Oh, he, he served Clemson football players fast food. Well, okay, that that that's that's fine. This is the flip side, though, about how sometimes we're so sensitive from the other perspective that we lose sight of things. It's a story about a woman named Frances Irene Finley Williams. She was mom. Passed away a little bit after Thanksgiving um, at the age of 87. So her family sits down to write an obituary. And trust me, this is – it's always uh, – trust me, if you've ever had to do this, you you know that it's difficult to kind of find the right tone and, and temperament. So, all right, they, they're, they're thinking about, okay, what, let's think about mom here. And, you know, mom, bridge playing, church going. She was an Elvis Presley fan. She loved Willie Nelson, and she was a political junkie who, quote, did not take gladly to fools. She was a very spirited woman, according to the family, um, and she was not a fan of President Trump. She often told her family before she passed away that President Trump was killing her or contributing to her decline. I'm getting sicker because of that guy in the White House. Okay, she dies. So the family is sitting down, and they're, they're writing this obituary. And at the end of the mom's obituary, all right, after they've gone through her passions for things, they add this sentence. Her passing was hastened by her continued frustration with the Trump administration. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But so they submit it to the Louisville Courier-Journal, which was the, the newspaper there, and it got rejected. They declined to publish the obituary um, unless they agreed to remove the, the Trump quip. And they said, well, th- this is this is nuts. I mean, we we didn't understand. Why would you bounce this? I mean, it's it's not obscene or anything. But the newspaper and this is Gannett, same company that owns the, the Journal Sentinel. They said, no, we're not going to accept it. So they've gone public with this story. They're saying, okay, they've, they've bounced the, this obituary, and now the, the newspapers are in full retreat saying, we, we, we made a mistake, we should have accepted this. Now, of course, this isn't the first story like this. I mean, really, going back to 2016, you know, you've had people who, in, in obituaries that they have written before they have passed away, or loved ones who are writing the obituaries, expressing their wishes, um, you know, one, for example, that was run in the Akron Beacon Journal back in 2016, his only regret is not being able to vote against Hillary Clinton in the next presidential election. All right, they want to do that. Um, another one, this was in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, uh, Jeffrey, that was the guy that passed away, would ask that in lieu of flowers, please do not vote for Donald Trump. You know, okay, so you have all these different things out there. Actually... It kind of, the whole thing kind of makes me smile. The Louisville Courier Journal, though, decided we aren't going to allow this, this obituary that is, by the way, these aren't, 
You pay for these. I mean, this was the family, I think, was shelling out like 1600 1700 bucks to pay f- to have this o- obituary run in the newspaper, and the newspaper ended up saying no. They've gone public with it. I mean, I think you can argue whether or not that's the appropriate place to make some of these political statements, but you know what? I, I mean... Look, they're hard enough to write. They're difficult enough to go through. And if politics is a big part of the deceased life and they want to take a shot in the obituaries, I, I say I say, absolutely go for it. And I think the newspaper was very, very wrong for not publishing it. And apparently they're now backtracking. But I don't know. If you want to tell people not to vote for President Trump or whatever you do, don't vote for Elizabeth Warren, and you want that in your obituary, I think you should be able to do it. Just saying. Me? I'm thinking about other stuff for the obituary, but, you know, hopefully that issue isn't going to come up for years and years and years, which is why my wife has me on the treadmill all the time. It's 235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You, you might have read that the Los Angeles Teachers Union, Los Angeles is the second largest behind New York school district in the country. They are out on strike now for their the third consecutive day. Interestingly, the L.A. schools have remained open. They're they're bringing in substitute teachers and they're, they're changing the scope of classes. Only about a third of the parents are sending students to to the schools while the teachers are out on strike. So, I mean, this is a, a very, very big deal. There's thousands and thousands of teachers that are out on strike. They're saying we want uh, relatively substantial raises. They Most of them make a pretty good living, but, you know, they, they, they want more money and they want smaller class sizes, meaning more teachers, et cetera. And the school district is saying we just don't have the money for it. I don't know what the resolution of this is. But this follows a pattern, of course, where um, – Last year in particular, various other school districts, the, the teachers went out on, on strike and found a sympathetic public. And, you know, everybody wants their kids to be in school, and pressure was brought, and officials ended up settling it. In the case of what's going on in L.A., I don't know how it's going to play out because, again, L.A. says we, we don't have the money for it. Well, I don't want to talk about the L.A. strike. I want to talk about something that is going on in Chicago or may go on shortly. Illinois is an absolute mess. Now, this this isn't a, a Bears versus Packer thing. I mean, it is just Illinois is is just that the the state is a fiscal mess, and and nobody knows how they're going to dig themselves out from under it. So you have a new president of the teachers union, and that the contract for the Chicago teachers union, Chicago being, I believe, the third largest school district in in the country. Their their negotiations are starting for a new contract. I think it expires in a couple months, uh, and the actually it expires June thirtieth. And the new union leader is saying, "Okay, well, well, here's the deal. We we want more. We want a lot more. We want at least a five percent pay raise for union members. We also." demand classroom sizes that are going to get a lot smaller, meaning you have to hire more teachers. We want counselors for every 250 students. We want librarians and nurses at every school. We intend to bargain hard. This is what the union president says. We intend to bring both our allies and our members into a fight for the schools that our students deserve. And, you know, we're 
There's going to be a new mayor, perhaps, in Chicago. Rahm Emanuel is not running again. So there's going to be, you know, somebody say, we're going to pressure the political candidates. We're going to make it an issue that they give us what we want. We want more teaching assistance. We want um, additional pay raises for all sorts of other employees who aren't teachers, including aides and school clerks, etc., 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 etc. We and so somebody, somebody, some intrepid reporter raises their hand and says, "Well, how much is all this going to cost?" Which you would think is a is kind of a, a fair question. How much is all this going to cost? And the the union president says, "I I I have no idea. I mean." We, we haven't even tabulated how much this is going to be, but we acknowledge that this is going to be a significant amount. We're asking for a whole bunch of money. So then another reporter asks the follow-up question. All right, if we all agree that this is going to be a lot of money, where is the money going to come from? And the response that they get is rich people. Rich people. We want the rich people to pay for this, which, which I thought was interesting. And, of course, it, it sort of mirrors some of the conversations that are going on on the national level about, here, let's increase the marginal tax rate and all. But this was, we want the rich people to pay for it, which I think raises an extremely interesting question that I would like to discuss with you. What do you define as rich? How and again, we're we're not talking about living a rich, full life. We're talking about somebody from the perspective of who should pay in this case for what what the teachers want, what this particular public employee union wants. They say it, it's going to be the rich people, and that's going to be the theory. We want the rich people to pay. How do you define rich? Who who is a rich person? Is somebody that makes fifty thousand dollars a year? Husband and wife, are they rich? Is it $100,000? Is it $200,000? Is it a million dollars? When I say we want the rich people to pay, who do you think a rich person is? And what makes somebody, what is that dollar amount where they get to be rich? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How do you define rich when you hear, let's make the rich people pay for whatever? 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you make a hundred grand, are you, are you middle class? Are you rich? How do you define it in your mind? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 241. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The LA Teachers Union is out on strike, really crippling the second largest school district in the country. The contract comes up in a couple months for the Chicago School District, and the new union chief is saying, well, we want a whole lot of stuff, and we know it's going to cost a whole lot of money, but we don't care. So somebody says, well, where's the dough going to come from? And the response is, we're going to get it from the rich people. And I was just intrigued by that. What what do you consider to be a, a rich person that's, I don't know, not contributing their fair share or should pay for all these different things? What makes you rich? 414-799-1620. Let's see. A um, couple texts coming in saying, if you make over a million dollars a year, you are you are rich. 
Um, okay, here's another one. I think people that make $100,000 a year are not rich, but they don't have to struggle financially like most Americans do. Uh, let's see. Um, Jeff, rich is somebody who can afford cable and hard copies of newspapers. Just kidding. 414-799-1620. Kevin says, I think people that make $100,000 a year are rich as well. All right. All right, what makes somebody rich? Let's start with Matt in Burlington. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. I'm going to go with roughly the 1%, which is right around 500000 Okay, so you would be in the, the top 1% of all the earners, so half a million dollars a year, that would make you rich. Yeah, and then the other point I would make, Jeff, is I think about 83% of the benefit of the last tax uh, cut does go to that one percent so that's where the rest of us need to look at and say well maybe that is an appealing uh policy Mm -hmm. well of course i mean the flip side though is that that those top earners are the ones that pay the vast majority of the taxes i mean that's the flip side uh i think if you look at the numbers i think 87 percent of taxes are collected from people that make I believe one fifty and above. Yeah. So I think that's that's where there's some accuracy to what you're saying. But when the benefits of tax cuts go disproportionately mm-hmm. to that top one percent, then you have to say, well, where's that right margin? Where's yeah, and, that and that's fair. fair. They, and I guess I, I don't I don't have the number actually. I I actually had this worked up as a topic that I didn't get to last week, where I actually did have the breakdowns and my. My recollection is that it's actually it's the top one percent, and it's actually the top one percent of the top one percent that pay uh, that, that pay a vast amount of the taxes that are ultimately collected. But I guess that the more fundamental question here is just simply what what is in your mind what is what makes somebody rich? At, at what dollar amount does that kick in? So we've had several people who've said a million dollars, other people who've said $500,000, and of course we're talking about income. Somebody said $100,000. What What is rich? Tom in Whitewater. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Uh, thank you for taking my yes, call. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, I live comfortably. My wife and I both work. We make less than $100,000. Um, and, you know, what makes somebody rich? Anyone who makes more money than me, but we all have to share the burden. Right. And there's no free lunch. Do you, well, and, and, and I don't think, well, okay, well, let me ask you this. Do you think that you, at your income level, do you think that you don't pay your fair share of taxes? Oh, no. Uh, no. Okay. I, I pay plenty in taxes. We support our schools. We we do everything. Um, somebody's going to pay for this, and it's not just the 1%. We're all going to have to pay for it if they put that through. Well, it's, right. Yeah. It's going to be spread throughout the you know, the population. Well, I mean, th- thanks, Scott. I mean, the reason I, I bring this up as a topic, let's see, uh, $2 million in gross assets. Um, let's see. Well, it is interesting. For example, for people who say at like $100,000 would be the limit, I would wonder uh, if if the average teacher in Chicago makes 
somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 65 grand, which wouldn't surprise me. That's kind of what it is in Los Angeles. And you've got a husband and a wife who are married, both of whom are husband and wife. Obviously, they're married. Sorry. You have a husband and a wife who are both teachers, both earning 60 or 65 grand. That puts them up to 120, 130. Are, Are they rich? I mean, where where do we get the these definitions and how do we decide on this now actually mike from marquette michigan who is a regular listener obviously who makes the point anyone who can afford a 350 dollar beanie is rich that by the way <coughs> we, we if you follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 it's still it's the most commented story that we've talked about for the first three days of this week there's this, this company that makes beanies ski caps that sell and look, I, I I wear ski caps. I mean, they're they're warm. I I like them. Never used to because my my ego. I don't I don't want to get involved with hat head and stuff like that. Now it's like okay, I want to be warm. So I mean, I I have a right now. I'm wearing a Marquette University, you know, beanie. I have a Brewers beanie. I have Packers beanies. Um, those various things. I don't think I've ever spent more than twenty or twenty five bucks tops for them. They're they're selling these beanies, and we we're talking about this yesterday and the day before. Three hundred and fifty bucks. There's this company, Montclair, that makes these beanies. They sell them for 350 bucks. 350 bucks. And they're so popular that kids are wearing them to school. And what happens when kids wear those things to school in the winter? You lose your scarves. You lose your gloves. You lose your, your hats. And so they're losing these $350 beanies. And the parents are freaking out. And they're calling the school and saying, you have to help find this, et cetera, et cetera, because it's worth 350 bucks. And to me, that is one of the ways of, of God telling you that you have too much money and that is um too much money and that is if you can afford a $350 beanie. All right, what makes you rich? $100,000. I don't think teachers are paid enough. That's what the uh that's what people say. Um let's see. That's how you use your money. Some people make $100,000 and they're considered rich by the way they spend it. Some people make a million and live paycheck to paycheck. Here's the the bigger point on all this. It's when you throw around terms like the rich don't pay enough. And, and what we need to do is, is we need to go after the rich or, or the wealthy. The problem is, as long as we live in a free society where people are always going to make different amounts of money, what you think of as being rich might be different to what somebody else thinks of as being rich. I guarantee you that there's people who, for example, you know, make $200,000 or $250,000 and consider themselves to be maybe well off. But, but certainly not rich. And they look at the expenses that they have and they look at their spending and they say, okay, well, we're upper middle class. We get to take a couple of vacations and we get to make our mortgage payments and things like that. But we don't consider ourselves to be rich. For me, I, I, I don't know. To me, looking at how much money somebody makes, that's not necessarily the best indication of whether they're rich or not. Because there's all sorts of people that, for example, have inherited wealth and have a a net worth of tens of millions of dollars, but maybe their annual income isn't necessarily that great. But, yeah, are are they rich because they've got all these huge assets? Well, yeah, they are. It's just you got to be careful when you you go into this class warfare, and I guess that was my point in in this topic. One of the things that we are seeing in this country, and I, I understand it's been going on for a number of years, but it seems to be getting worse, that you have this idea that class warfare is the way to to get support and, and to benefit, and that there's always somebody who has 
more than you. That's almost always going to be the case unless you're the person at the top end of, of the pyramid. And so, all right, you know, there's people that are making X amount of money and they don't deserve that. You know, you deserve that. They're, you're working harder than they are and you're trying to make ends meet. And, and look, you know, they're just sitting with their feet up and they're collecting all this money. It's this whole idea of, of class warfare that's out there and this idea that, you know, maybe being successful and maybe making money is a bad sort of thing. I think you have to be careful about that because one of the things that's great about this country is the fact that you can you can have people who maybe start from very modest means and, and maybe it's because they've got this idea to build the better mousetrap or maybe because they've got some some particular skill or maybe it's because they're a great athlete or whatever doesn't matter but they're able to you know earn a, a, a great living and they're able to make a bunch of money and the you know, some people think that there should be something wrong with that. I think what you need to do is you need to celebrate achievement and you need to appreciate success and start getting away from this. Well, the the rich are evil, especially if we can't agree on a definition of who is rich and who isn't. All right, let's take a very quick break. It is 2.53. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner.